0: Just before we start, this episode contains details of the immediate aftermath of the fire, including efforts to identify those who died.
1: At around half two in the morning on Valentine's Day 1981, smoke was still rising from the stardust. Fire crews were working to contain what remained of the blaze. Hundreds of young people stood looking at the nightclub. There was panic and confusion. More than 800 of them had been inside barely an hour ago. People were scrambling to find their friends. Did they make it out? Did they go home? Are they in hospital? They were joined outside the Stardust by locals looking to see what was going on, emergency crews helping the injured and journalists finding out what had happened. RTE's Charlie Board was woken up and told to head to North Dublin
2: but it was maybe half one or two o'clock. And the man who rang me was Mike Burns, who was the head of radio at the time. And Mike said to me, Charlie, there's been a major fire uh, on the north side of Dublin in a, at, a, at a disco uh, called the Stardust. Get yourself there as fast as possible. I have the vivid image of driving across where Liberty Hall is. There is a Butt Bridge there, and when you swing around by the bus the city morgue, and already um, the ambulances and whatever were bringing bodies there. So I got myself to the to to Arten and to the Stardust by just basically following uh, everything that was happening, and I. I would say I got there about maybe I I wasn't the first journalist there or anything like that and maybe half maybe half three in the morning and the other image I will always remember is that it was freezing cold and that the water from the hoses of the fire brigade had already frozen over Sean Burke was the cameraman. He lived nearby and he got there and he took these images which you see, all of the images of, of people coming out and the awful scenes. He was the one, uh, he was the RT cameraman who uh, took those images and then I, I was there. I, I mean I spent the rest of my, I spent the next 24 hours working non-stop.
1: Firefighter Dave Fitzgerald was only a few years in the job. He and many of his colleagues had never experienced anything like this.
3: As all the, the, the crews did all over the, all over the city, we were just going in and out, in and out to hospitals, you know, from people who were at the scene, the kids that were injured, to their families getting upset, and it just went on all night, chat yeah. But the crews done amazing work. I mean, the crews were incredible. And um, only when I say, only when everything was, was, was dampened down a thing, we were just, in and we were kind of moving people around the place, bodies like around um, But the lads were in there from Word go, you know. But it was, it was, seeing, going back to that first part, I can remember people being in toilets and, and um, screaming out and saying, get them out, get them out, get them out. Um, I remember the lads had put chains up to try and pull, the, to pull these big um, metal bars off the windows and uh, the walls were nearly coming down. So they had to stop that, because the whole place would have collapsed, you know. But well, we could hear them. It was shocking, yeah.
1: As Board was travelling across to the north side, heading up Amiens Street past the morgue on Star Street, Garda Lawrence Duffy was at the same time making his way back to the Stardust from escorting the injured to hospitals around Dublin.
4: The whole place was cleared at around, sometime around 3 or 4 o'clock. Somebody decided to take the bodies out, and we went in to get the bodies. Yeah, there wasn't anybody really in control that I could remember. They have to have to, I mean, because there were four of us for each body to take them out. The bodies were just black. So you were trying to take the body out into the alleyway and then the fire brigade were hosing them down to try to cool them off because you couldn't put them in the ambulance the way they were. The bodies were taken to Star Street in Vincent's. I probably took out about seven or eight bodies, just in and out, doing it like clockwork. I've had 15 years in the scene a bit. There were some young men and girls there. They were fantastic. Some young foremen. They knew what they were doing. I don't know how they survived.
1: The scene was chaotic. Gardaí, paramedics, fire crews, anyone available. They'd all gone to the stardust to try to bring the situation under control. They'd remained there for hours, for days. Many who escaped the fire uninjured were there as well, unsure of what to do next, in shock. Eventually there was nothing left to do other than go home. And that's when everything else began. The process of identifying the victims. The investigation into what had caused the fire. The funerals. A tribunal of inquiry. This was all going to take its toll on the close-knit community. And exposed problems in how Ireland dealt with a disaster of this size. But that was all to follow. Errol Buckley, who had won the disco dancing competition, walked his girlfriend back to her parents' house in the early hours of that morning. He hadn't seen his brothers Jimmy or Albert since the fire had broken out. So, four o'clock
4: came, I said, We've just got over here, we just got over here, and I'll bring you home and And I went out the whole miles and I was trying to wash stuff, I was black ours. I couldn't get the stuff out, just couldn't get it out, just black I was, you know. So, I came back to the house, my brother Pat was mine and uh, and Julian I said, Pat, I can't find Jimmy anywhere. He says, I heard all the fire brigades and all going up and all that. I says, I don't know what's happening here, you know, Albert, I don't know where Albert went to. So, the next morning, see, my mum was living down the country. And so he had to come up with my mom, uh Someone got on to my mother, like, you know. So we don't know where Jimmy is. And uh, you, you know about the fire and all that. So my mum came from the country and I was saying to the family, I said, look, at, I heard he was out a few times. You know, I don't know if he's actually taken. Did he, you know, did he go off and and that? And the, no one knew. Again, there was no, there was no phone calls, you know. So I was saying to myself, I said, I don't know what's happening now. We no care, you know, we didn't know what to do. But a few of the uh, brother-in-law's came around, they had cares and all that. So we'd go on a search party and we'd go ask people. we go to houses because the hospitals couldn't ring you and you couldn't ring the hospital. So we must have went to about
1: 10 hospitals after. Selena McDermott, too young to go to the Stardust, was at her sister's house. Her brothers George and Willie and her sister Marcella headed out to the club that night. Word of what was happening soon came to her father, an off-duty fireman.
0: God, it was early in the morning. My dad um, was a fireman in Taristry, D-Watch, and he was off duty that night. I was actually up in my sister June's house. That she June lived, she was the Alice, but June lived a door away from the family home in, in Edenmore. She still lives there. And uh, I was actually up in her house at the time. But anyway, there was a big commotion and... Um, My dad um, woke my mother up. Um, There was a fire in the Stardust. Uh, He ran up to June's house. I was there. And then it was just all, right, we know that Willie's there. George is there. We have to get over to the Stardust. And then uh, they said, well, Marcella is is babysitting. She's with her friends. And then I said to my dad, no, I said, she's not. She's at the Stardust. And he sort of like just picked me up and shook me. And then just said, "Um, what do you mean? She's at the... Effing Stardust, you know. And I said she's she's at the Stardust, and then he just dropped me, and the just ran out the door, towards going towards Stardust, and then they were um, looking for them it was mayhem, absolute mayhem. It was it was uh, weird, sort of um, a weird chaos. Nobody could find them. Nobody knew any inf- information. In and out of the corners, um yeah, it was mayhem, absolutely crazy. There was no organisation, no nothing.
1: Many families and survivors recall this frantic search for news about their loved ones. It was up to them to find out what hospital they were in. Even before sunrise, the entire community began to realise the scale of what had happened, the scale of the tragedy. Catherine and Susan Darling, along with their friend Paula O'Brien, remember huddling around the radio with their families.
5: So we came home, Demi Ma I was cross-roading and crying and Karen. Uh, was worse, but she she looked down the road and she says, My house in darkness on my man dad's in bed so they won't know anything. So she says she came home and we all sat in the kitchen we next to me. We on the radio and we were sitting in there listening to the radio saying, you know, people are on us saying such a body is, is so is, is missing and such a body is missing and there was there was a girl across the road, Paula Lewis, was missing. Mary Kenny from down the road. Hello, uh, nice. Sandra Lawless, these are people we would have went to Hugh school Keegans with. Then the two Keegan's, who else? Yeah. Helena Mangan, they were all from around these routes. I think there were seven altogether. That's from, no, from, from just there. around French. here. No, Oh, Michael French, Michael yeah, Frost River. Johnny Colgan. Uh, oh, Michael, Michael L. L. French <laughs> would have been a friend of ours. He was never identified till years and years and years later. later. Mick French, lovely fella. I Get actually, it? when I went home, I got my man down up out of bed. My cousin was missing. One, one of my cousins was missing. And me ma went into the hospital with our sister, and he went to every hospital gown and he couldn't find him. But they actually met Mrs. Keegan that night, and they eventually found my cousin. He was okay, now he was born, but he was okay. He's okay, and me ma came home and she had she saw the reality in the hospital, and she just broke down and she said, "Thank God we're all right, you know." And but she said. There's a poor woman up there and she can't find her two daughters, Mrs. Keegan. At that law we stay with her. You know and what she saw in the hospital isn't. That was the reality for me. Yeah. When she came in, when she came back from the hospital. And as I said, standing out at the door the next morning, well, when when it got daylight and everybody was out on the roads, and they were all saying, look at Paula Lewis never came home now. Paula lived across the road here. Paulo Lowe's never came home last night. Her man and dad going around all the hospitals. You know, Sandra Lawless is missing, and Paul and Sandra and Mary Kenny would have been yeah. friends. Our Or Debbie Osborne was missing. Now, Debbie Osborne survived it, uh, but she lost three of our friends, was it? Yeah. She, she went with three others, and she was the only one who survived it. And all these different people were missing. Some of them were accounted for, they were in hospital. And you were hearing then, oh, such a body's alive. Right? she's in the hospital, or he's in the hospital. But then as the days went on, then the likes of poor Mick French that was never identified for years later where I Mick French was missing you know and like we would have known Mick well uh, and this is kind of what you were getting for the next week maybe was it or more even till you knew exactly how many people were after being killed in it
1: Sunrise was just before 8am that morning. It was bright, clear, but still freezing cold. From the outside, the extent of the damage to the stardust wasn't completely apparent. Windows were blown out, concrete blackened by the smoke, but the interior was completely destroyed. It was a mess of burnt tables and masonry. Aerial photos taken that morning show the roof caved in. Families around North Dublin were starting to hear bad news. It travelled fast. Eugene Kelly was on a ship in the Irish Sea at the time. News came through on the radio about his brother Robert. I
6: was on the the Kilkenny ship, travelling from Dublin to Fleetwood. There was a freight ship I was walking on. And I recall, set back to Dublin next morning, I heard all this commotion all over the radio station. People said there was a big fire in the standards. We were up getting Valentine's cards for our wives, we there. Another crew member, Billy Hutton. And next all of a sudden, uh, one of the crew members come up to me and He says, Eugene, you're wanting down in the office. I said, for what? He says, Eugene, I don't know. You better go down and see the cheap horse. He wants to have a you." So I went down thinking, was there something wrong? Blah, blah. So he says to me, Eugene, I'm about to get in a car from your family. You have to get home straight away. There's been a big fire in the status last night. Your mother and father's been out looking for him. and He's searched all hospitals and there's so many dead that he's not. He had me found, and all his friends had been down at the house, so they all got out. So I went back up to get somebody stuck by me. And to be honest with you, Sean, I just broke down, clinic and crying. Just Just something told me that he was one of them ones who died in the fire.
1: Morris and Phyllis McHugh were in the UK that weekend for a wedding. Their only daughter, Caroline, didn't want to go. She stayed behind to go out that night.
7: Now, Caroline didn't want to go because the starter's dance on the competition was on. So we were saying, well, you can't stay home on your own, you know. At this time, she was 17 and a half years of age. So her friend, who just lived across the road, uh, said, "Well, you don't worry, Caroline can stay with us, and we'll look after her for the night, but only for a weekend, and went." So, and anyway, we headed off on the Friday, and we stayed in Phyllis's uncle's house in Manchester. Uh, and on the following, we stayed there that And the, the following morning, it was the Saturday morning. We went up to the local shopping area, and Phyllis's uncle came and uh, called us and said there's had to be been a phone call from dublin that's been a serious fire in dublin in the stardust and uh, caroline is missing so they were all getting ready for the, for the wedding that day so we decided we said look we'll disappear we we'll try and get a flight home and they hadn't any flights coming back to dublin that day anyway we got a flight from Liverpool, that's right, so we, I had the car with me. So we drove down from Manchester down to Liverpool that night and got a flight home at five o'clock. And Phyllis' mother and our aunt were with us in Manchester at the time. And as we were driving back from Manchester to Liverpool, there wasn't a word spoken in the car. You know, I don't know how I drove, but I, I did, I drove there.
1: For families like the McHughes and the Kelly's, what had happened in the early hours of that morning become a turning point in all of their lives. And even for people not directly affected, for people all across Ireland, the Stardust Club in Artein was about to become something etched in their minds. If you were around back in 1981, you remember where you were when you heard about the Stardust Fire. It led radio and later television bulletins. Journalists flocked to the scene to cover it. The first editions of the Evening Press and Evening Herald newspapers were out early that afternoon. The Evening Press ran with Disco Fire Disaster, at least 43 die in City Inferno.
8: At least 43 people were burned to death and over 200 injured, some seriously amid scenes of indescribable horror at a Dublin disco cabaret early this morning. The scene was one of utter confusion And nobody in the first hour of the tragedy had grasped its magnitude. It was only when fire brigade men succeeded in getting into the heart of the building that the terrible toll was discovered.
1: The Evening Herald bore the headline, Cabaret Holocaust.
8: Dublin mourned its dead children today. A tangled mess of charred wreckage stood as their funeral pyre. A black pall of smoke, hanging over a burnt-out nightclub, was their shroud.
1: The paper reported Taoiseach Charles Hockey, visiting victims in hospital.
8: The whole thing has been particularly harrowing for me, he said. It happened in the middle of my own parish, as it were.
1: This was accompanied by a picture of Hahi walking through the still warm ruins. It's now an enduring image of the disaster. Photojournalist Eamon Farrell had gone down to the scene and he captured what the wreckage of the stardust looked like in time for the afternoon editions.
9: And so when I got there, um, basically, all the activity you know had happened during the night and what you were dealing with was the aftermath of it so you had a fairly badly destroyed building could see inside it that it literally had you know fallen apart there was a lot of uh, guards around a lot of emergency services there was uh, still people you know from the locality who were gathered you know the people who wanted to talk and tell you what's seen or what they knew etc so I suppose after about an hour working there, I had heard that um, Charlie Haughey had been there. The annual conference of
1: Haughey's ruling Fianna Fáil party was due to begin that morning at the RDS, with thousands of delegates attending from all around the country. Before midday, Haughey ordered the event to be cancelled. He declared the following Tuesday to be a national day of mourning. That day as well, as a mark of respect. RTE cancelled the Late Late Show, which was due to be aired that night. It is still one of the only times in its 57-year history when the show did not go ahead. Charlie Board remembers the magnitude of the day. In particular, he recalls how the ruins retreated that morning, at a time when forensic science wasn't anything like it is today.
2: The bizarre thing, we walked through it. You know, it's six, there are images of me doing a piece to camera in the in the, in the Stardust. Charlie Hawhey walked through it because it was the, the the day, the morning of the Fianna Fáil it was cancelled. Charlie Hawhey turned up there. And, you know, I feel like the media was there in huge numbers. Um, and sometimes it's hard to... If you put yourself in the position, you know, that 48 young people, you know, today um, it would be... Uh, such an enormous story. I mean, it is a, it was, it's hard to describe.
1: At the same time, families were frantically checking hospitals to see if their child had been admitted. Others were making another trip onto the morgue, preparing themselves to receive the worst news.
7: The McHughes rushed back to Dublin to find out what happened to Caroline, their only child. So I arrived back in Dublin about half seven or so. I went straight down to the morgue. And uh, when we got to the morgue, then they were explained to us that uh, Caroline was so badly burnt that, uh, that they advised us not to see the remains. So we were sort of in shock. We we're going along, what the we wanted to see Caroline. But we were in such a shock at the time that we went along with what everybody said, were telling us what to do, guiding us along. So anyway, they brought out a piece of Caroline's jeans, and it was the back pocket of her jeans, and, and it was soaking wet and in the back pocket was a cone that was melted and they also handed us a watch that was burnt to bits. And a chain. And a chain, and that was badly burnt as well. Lorraine
1: MacDonald had to break the news to her parents that no one could find her sister, Theresa.
10: The whole day, this Saturday, obviously they were out going from hospital and trying to find, giving the names and nurses no or whatever who wasn't here, I'd say no, her name's not here. People haven't given the names, uh, her name ain't nobody's given her name out. So, my dad came, I don't know what time it was in the afternoon, they eventually came around. got home and, and I'm up in going upstairs, and next I heard him crying upstairs. I went up to him and said, Dad, Dad, we have found you, we find And he looked at me and he went, I'm sorry. So he said, I mean, we'll find her. He was apologising for crying. And, the, actually then, this Sunday, my father went around my uncle's, the only place she didn't go was to the city market. She went and he found, she identified her by a ring my mother had given her for her 16th birthday, which originally belonged to her, when my father had given to her when they were 16 and married and he turned to ring and the, the brown scapula, and um, just a numbing shock. It's like a, if I could say, and I'm sure this applies to all the families, it was like an earthquake going through your home.
1: The Frasers, from south of the Liffey, anxiously waited for word of Thelma. Morris remembers the moment he heard news about his sister.
11: We had uh, dental records uh, to positively identify uh, Thelma. Uh, she had a, a dentist in, in Donnybrook and he actually told the story that he was called at all hours in the morning to go to go with the sorcery with his dental charts of Thelma. We didn't know exactly where in Donnybrook her dentist was but Obviously, the, the guards have been walking around, walking around the background uh, to try and find this out, and they they, they came across the dentist, and uh, yeah, uh, Tim was positively identified through dental records only. So, next few days uh, was actually awful. Uh, my my dad dad was very strong, uh, my mom also a very strong, strong person, but uh, to see your father, who's you know an ex-army man, and uh, you know. When Tom's name was read out on, uh, I think it was on the news, he, we had loads of family in there, maybe too much uh, family. Uh, he literally exploded, uh, you know, he just, you know, that's, that's my daughter you're talking about, that's my daughter. And with that, he just went out the door and, you know, we didn't see him for a few hours and, you know, I suppose, you know, that's, that's the way it was. It was very tough on, on him. I know my mum was heavily sedated at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of went over her head at the time. But uh, Yeah, my dad, you know, to see him explode like that, he is a gentleman, absolutely, totally gentleman.
1: Errol Buckley had won the dancing competition, but that was long forgotten. In the aftermath and the chaos of escaping from the stardust, he couldn't find his brothers Albert and Jimmy. Albert soon turned up safe, but it was days before they heard what happened to Jimmy. It was
4: till, only till the Tuesday that we found out that Jimmy died, like, you know. He was found at one of the doors, he was, you know, but he was out looking for me and that, you know. Because he had his wife and all there, you know. Because he, he knew the Stardust off the back of his hand. He was a, he was a charge hand, he worked in Scott behind it. And they were in the Stardust every day. So he would have known every door. And every exit, you know, to grin it out and that. So, he people were just saying he wouldn't tell you, you now he was out looking for you. He says, and Chris then, ah, sick of us, you know, it's just just go out and stay out, like you know what I mean. But that's what he was like as a
1: brother, you know. Yvonne Graham and her friends she worked with at the nursing home were all there that night.
12: I remember going back to Nazareth's house and the nuns then making me go, I think it was in the next, they said Susie hadn't come back and I thought Susie was back and all. I think it was the next day I had to go back to the morgue. After we'd done the hospitals and we couldn't get everywhere we'd done, we started going around the morgues and that's when I went done the wrong part, the back of the morgue. So it was, it was like marquee out, with bodies on it, because uh, there was that many bodies, they had nowhere to put them. But, uh, that's when I saying I had the nightmares in with the, the bodies, climbing up the bed. But um, back then, the Nazareth house, and Susie still hadn't hadn't turned up. And then they got a phone call. I don't know how many... Do you know what it was like? It was like a dream. You know, like it must have been just a shock. And I don't know the distance, to be honest with you, between us coming back and being in the Nazareth house and the nuns getting the phone call you say you come down and identify Susie or what was left of her clothes so I had to go with the nuns I think it was Sister Hillary took me down or Sister Paula can't remember which one of them it was took me down and I had to identify a bit of Susie's clothes and her ring and your shirt and her she borrowed Finola's shirt that's what police says because you know when you're teenagers I had Finola's jumper on on the fire and Susie had Finola's shirt on so she had, it was all for clothes. So it was, but they, and we identified, well, I identified her, her ring and her trousers, and what was left of the trousers, and a bit of the shirt, I think it was. So that was how we, we found out that Susie was dead, so that it was Susie, like.
1: Eugene Kelly faced an agonising wait for news about his brother, Robert.
6: So when I walked through the door, my mother started roaring and screaming and crying, she started saying, Eugene, Eugene. Uh, Robert is not, we think he's dead and I said, "Ma, we don't know if he's dead we haven't got any any uh, anything to state that he is dead so as the days went on we, I was going in and out into, into the morgue in, in uh, Eamon Street there, my sister and I always remember, it was on the Tuesday if I can recall that one of the guards, kind fiaconic of came out when he was holding a bit of this uh, material and it was like velvet, now I, I was always aware of Robert's velvet jacket and just a lump of a and he said, Can you identify it? And I said, Yeah, and soon as I, I just remember just clapped and then all of a sudden, which I said in many of in the interviews I've done, I just clapped and brought home in a police car, and as soon as I went to the mother because my mother was in a bed bedroom, she would get out of bed. So as soon as she hears me roaring and screaming, crying coming through the door, she knew Robert was was dead, you know. So um it's it just, it, just stay i never forget. The McDermott's
1: lost three children
0: yeah it was one by one. Um, yeah, it was Willie. Um, yeah, they 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 found Willie. yeah, yeah, so it was then that just my mother was just um obviously, you know, like devastated, absolutely devastated. yeah. and then um George and Marcella. so
1: The identification of bodies continued for days. The first of many funerals was held early the following week. And during this time, the fire still dominated the headlines, but a difficult aspect was starting to emerge for the families – a narrative of arson. Monday's Irish press ran a story that a former barman claimed the fire was set deliberately. On the same day, the Evening Herald's front page had a quote from the owners – not our fault.
8: The owner of the Stardust, Patrick Butterly, has declared that he now firmly believes that the fire which ripped through the huge entertainment complex had been started by arsonists.
1: The Irish Times had this line from Gardaí.
8: The Garda investigation of last Saturday morning's fire in a North Dublin entertainment centre in which 48 dancers died will consider the possibility of arson, although a Garda spokesman yesterday confirmed that they had an open mind as to the cause of the blaze and had yet to establish the exact time of the outbreak.
1: In 1981, Eamon Dunphy's career as a journalist was just beginning. The former professional footballer was tasked with covering the story on the doorsteps for the Sunday Tribune. Alongside the claims of arson, it's apparent that from the very outset, class was a central aspect to how many people viewed the Stardust tragedy. This happened in working class North Dublin. Even today, this idea of a class divide between the north and south of the city still exists, but it was even more pronounced back then. Many survivors and families of victims believed that because of this, assumptions were made about the cause of the fire that lingered, and they feel there was an eagerness to sweep this under the carpet and just move on. Dunphy was a familiar face and now a sports journalist, but he was also from a
13: working class area. This was the first big, big story. And I was working as a uh, sports writer, but Jim Farley, whose news editor, was old style uh, news editor, very good. And he said, I want you to go with Emily O'Reilly, who's now gone on to great things in Europe and elsewhere, was the ombudsman. Uh, so, and two others. And I, you go because you're working class. And uh, I know you don't do news, but those people will know you from the telly, doing the football and playing football, and uh, they'll be more receptive. Dunphy told the newsroom that he wanted to make sure that the interviews were handled sensitively. But we went in, you know, in what we believed would be a non-exploitative way. In other words, you know, don't take advantage of people who are grieving to get... Uh, you know, a story. But it, when we did go out, the devastation uh, was clear. And of course, at that point, the devastation was sort of compounded in a big way by the f- fact that it was believed to have been an arsonist from their own community who thrown something into the stardust and caused the fire. The entire community was reeling.
1: So many young people had died, and so many of them from within a small area. People had never experienced anything like this. Linda Bishop knew many of those who had died, and, for Errol Buckley, not only did he attend his own brother's funeral, he went to many others.
14: She went out onto the road and people were hugging each other. You know, everywhere you went, it was, you knew somebody or you'd hear another name. Like I say, we had heard... So many people died. But then you were starting to hear the names and more names. And a girl who was in my class in school, two actually, who were in my class in school. And uh, yeah, just just so many. And then there was two of the Keegans and there was three McDermott's. Oh, Jesus, it was just it was unbelievable. And then there was a girl who lived on my road and she had a little girl. So she was killed. And then you heard of another couple who, were, you know, they left a the baby behind. But uh, oh, it, was, it was horrendous, it was just horrendous. And then it would start the funerals, and every day, you know, every second day there was a funeral, and you're trying to make this funeral, and that funeral. And then of course we're all just seeing each other, and it was,
4: yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, I think it was about four or five funerals a day, like, you know I man. I and mean, there was funerals we wanted to go to, but they were on the same, different days, and you know, people that we knew and that, you know, you're
1: just, what must almost just going to funerals. Because so, it was all the north with. it. Nobody was left unaffected, for the journalists tasked with covering it, like Charlie Board and Eamon Farrell, it was harrowing to witness.
2: But I was out for one of the funerals out in Sutton, and it was a cold day, and to see all those relatives, you know, there were huge numbers, I mean, sometimes there was five and six funerals a day, and they were taking place every day. It's, it's so hard to get your head around it
9: some of the pictures i took there kind of you know they kind of stuck with me i mean one of the pictures i took i think shows i think about 13 horses lined up outside the church in in kilmore i remember when i was in the graveyard i mean i think there was about five funerals taking place at the same time you know so i kind of covered uh, two of them and uh, they were they were a really really rough introduction to photojournalism but there were probably something that once you experience it, uh, you realize that what your job was, was to record what you've seen and not to try and intrude. But sometimes, if you want to record how devastating and how avoidable a particular disaster was, you have to intrude a little bit. And on that occasion, even though I was quite experienced, but i looking back on it and even looking at the images now, I'm happy that it was necessary to show the grief of the people who like the parents who were left, etc, so that people would remember you know how devastating it was. You know.
1: The funerals continued for days. Garda Lawrence Duffy made an effort to provide escorts for as many of them as possible to try to give those who died a dignified ceremony. This type of gesture left an impact on Morris Fraser
11: like we had family come over from. England and, and wherever. I think when you see when you when you see the the, the hearse come out of uh sorcery, uh, uh the mortuary and sorcery, uh that's when it hits you. You know, that's you know, you know your sisters and that and uh that's basically it, you know. You just have to get on with it. Um but that's probably the first time I actually broke down when I seen this, and uh, Dad was was very strong, you know. He he overcome all the the problems he had earlier on. You know, he was you know very very strong. And uh, the respect shown by by everybody was was amazing in in Dublin. You know, uh, going across the Liffey. You know, one of only two people on on the south side. Uh, traffic stopped. Uh, guards everywhere. You know, it's just. The respect was amazing, you know, and I'm sure it was on the, on the north side as well for, for the other victims. Uh, yeah, that's, that's when it really hit, you know, it hit me personally, you know, so.
1: We've heard from families struggling to identify the remains of their loved ones through dental records, through pieces of clothing. The Darlings and Paula O'Brien remember a ceremony for seven young people who had died in the fire. None could be identified. However, just prior to burial, the remains of two were identified. Richard Bennett, Michael French, Morty Kavanagh, Eamon Lockman, and Paul Wade were all buried together.
5: Like we went to all the funerals that we could go to, that you could, work, that you had, yeah, yeah. yeah that you had the, What would you say? That you could cope with? Do you know what I mean? And, but I always remember everybody went to the big field, it was in Dunny County Church, because it was the biggest church around. Coffins were laid at the top of the church. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I had on a unidentified male. And that's the way they were buried together in the one grave, because nobody knew, nobody knew who owned what child, which I thought was horrific. <sighs> to have your child and not even be able to bury your own child. You know what I mean? It was absolutely heartbreaking for their parents, I
1: think. Terrible. Ireland needed to know how this tragedy could have ever happened. Taoiseach Charles Hoggy promised that the state would respond swiftly. The Gardaí began investigating immediately. They talked to hundreds of witnesses, explored all possibilities. Was it accidental? Or was it arson? There was never an arrest made and no one was charged. Separate to this, Hahi announced an inquiry would be set up to get to the bottom of what happened at the Stardust. It was to be a tribunal of inquiry, the highest form of public inquiry. This would examine the cause of the fire, how so many lost their lives, the fire safety measures in place at the club. The building regulations for places like this and whether they'd been upheld? And finally, what could be learned to prevent another disaster? The last inquiry of this scale came two years previous after the Whitty Island disaster, where a cargo ship explosion claimed the lives of 50 people. The next tribunal after Stardust would be the Kerry Babies case in 1984. More recently, you'd have heard of the Disclosures Tribunal, which looked at allegations of a smear campaign against Garda whistleblower Morris McCabe. Hawhey was the subject of one himself in 1997, an investigation that found he evaded taxes. When it came to the Stardust, the Tribunal promised to leave no stone unturned, and shine the spotlight on any and all people responsible for the events of the night of the 13th of February 1981. However. Many of the families feel this did anything but. Given their dissatisfaction that was to follow, some have taken a dim view of Hockey's promises to get to the bottom of what happened that night. In the case of Morris and Phyllis McHugh, who were about to bury their daughter Caroline, he wasn't someone they felt they could put their faith in from the very start.
12: At that time, the bodies went to the church the night before. They don't do it now, they go to church in the mornings. But years ago they didn't. They went to church night before. Caroline, she was in the club up in St. Ficris, just up there. The Nativity is the church up there. And um, we came back down and my aunt was here and good few my sisters and my sisters, all. they were all here. And sitting down there was Charlie Hawkey. And at that time it was Brown was his name. I don't know if it was some Brown anyway. And they were sitting down there and my aunt asked him to leave. She said, you're not sincere. You know that you're just here today. And he just got up and left.
1: Antoinette Keegan would have the exact same view of Hahi today. Nothing has changed. In recent years, she has been a tireless campaigner, leading efforts for justice for the victims and families of the Stardust Fire. The efforts in the 1980s were led by her father, John, who was driven by the loss of his daughters, Mary and Martina. Antoinette's experience after the fire was different to most. She wasn't able to attend the funerals. She was hospitalized with serious injuries. She couldn't even be told about what happened to her sisters for weeks.
14: I was in there for two and a half weeks and my man and dad was coming up and I wasn't letting a newspaper. A television, a radio, nothing, and anyone that was coming up, had, I'd ask them how Mary and Martina was, and they'd say they're oh, fine, yeah, they're grand, they're grand. And my mother and father was coming up and taking off the morning clothes, the black clothes, and coming up in their ordinary clothes, and I'd say it to my ma, "How's Mary?" She say, "Mary's in the matter. And she's grand. Martina's in the mid. and uh, they were asking for you. And I don't know how they done it. I really don't for two and a half weeks. I like it was one of those things that you." were told they had to do because otherwise I would have went into shock. And the doctors had warned me right, that it was 50-50 for me to survive. So at the end of the day, they done what they had to do to keep me alive. And I I always admired them. I always admired them because I don't know how they done it to this day. It's one of the most strongest things that they ever had to do in their whole life. Come in and like talk about it and after burying the two of them. When I found out after the priest um, that Miriam Martina had been killed... I screamed the hospital down, I couldn't believe her. And then my dad came in with my ma to visit me, and they see me very upset. And my dad said, What's wrong? And I said, Tell me it's not true. He said, What's not true? He said, Tell me that Miriam and Martina are not dead. And he said, Who told you? I said, The priest said, Tell me, just tell me. I said, It's not true. And he said, Wait, Hang on. And he went running around to the hospital looking for the priest, but I don't think the priest meant any harm however. Still so to this day, I t- believe that he was actually. Um, what do you call it? Innocent and like didn't know anything, but um, me ba- my father came back anyway, and he says it's true. He said yeah. He said we didn't want to tell you. He said because we would have put you back. He said I didn't want you to uh, find out this way. So anyway, I was like fairly upset, and when my mother and father went, I remember getting out of bed and just walking along the um, the corridor. I went down the stairwell, and. From the stairwell then, right, I ended up going out onto um, the quay. I still had my dress on me, and the um, porter seen me going out, and he came after me. And my wish was, right, that Miriam Martinez was gone. I was with them last, and I didn't even say goodbye to them, so I wanted to join them. So I wanted to jump in the liffy and end my life. And the party told me I was go back in, so I got to get some sort of a sed- sedative anyway to kind of calm me down.
1: To this day, Antoinette is still leading the efforts to get to the bottom of what happened to her and her sisters that night. The tribunal left people with far more questions than answers, and meant that the families and survivors lost their first chance at getting any kind of closure. Next time on Stardust.
12: They were all shocked that we were still loving because uh, they were all told that we had died in the fire.
1: As our understanding
5: of the effect of trauma on people has changed a lot uh, in the intervening 38 years.
12: You were
14: told, like, if you didn't accept this compensation, right, and you go to court, like, if you lose your case, you can lose your home. Like, families lost their loved ones, they lost their children. And this is what they were putting up to us.
2: I'm absolutely certain that if the Stardust fire had happened in the south side of Dublin and happened in Donnybrook or someplace else in the middle class area, we wouldn't be where we are today.
1: If you're affected by anything raised in this episode, support is available. You can contact Samaritans on 116 123 or email them on joe at samaritans.ie. That's j o at samaritans.ie. Thank you for listening to episode four of Stardust. I'm Sean Murray, and this podcast is produced by Nikki Ryan, with executive producer Christine Bowen. We've covered a relatively short time span in the episodes up until now, mostly confined to February 1981, where we're going to be looking at the events of the rest of the decade and right up until the current day in the next two episodes. As always, we'll be tweeting out more material and details on our Twitter account, at StartersPod. And please subscribe and leave us a rating whenever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Thursday, the 7th of November. With episode five of the Journal Stardust Podcast.